Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about science fiction, science, and everything else. I'm Annalee Newitz. I'm the author of Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age. I'm Charlie Jane Anders. I'm the author of Victories Greater Than Death, a young adult space opera coming in April. We're in a war with a virus. It's called COVID-19, and it's done a lot of damage to us in the past year. It's killed a lot of people, it's sent the rest of us hiding inside, and it's gotten us thinking a lot about stories about viruses and stories about our relationship with viruses and pandemics. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about the science of viruses, what viruses are really like, but also the kinds of stories we tell when we talk about our relationship with viruses, even just whether we even admit that viruses are alive at all. And joining us is special guest Sarah Zong, who is a staff writer at The Atlantic, who's been covering the coronavirus pandemic for about a year now. And she's going to tell us about what she's found, and then we're going to talk about where this takes us in science fiction and the future. I'm here with Sarah Zhang, who is an amazing science journalist. She's a staff writer at The Atlantic, and I actually know her from many years ago when we worked together at Gizmodo back in the prehistory of humanity. Yeah, Annalie was my boss. <laughs> I was, I was, yeah, I guess I was technically your boss. Yeah, so <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about the coverage you've been doing of the coronavirus, but also viruses more generally. So to get everyone caught up and on the same page, tell us a little bit about the coronavirus specifically, the one that we're dealing with, COVID-19, and how it's a little bit different from other viruses that we've met before, or maybe how it's the same. Yeah, well, it's actually quite similar to SARS, which has led to this very confusing thing where, you know, we call it covid uh, the disease COVID-19, but scientists actually call the virus that causes it SARS-CoV-2 to distinguish from what is now SARS-CoV-1, which was the virus that was first discovered in 2003 in China. And they really are quite similar. That's why scientists were give them the same name to yeah. everyone's confusion. So coronaviruses for a long time were kind of, as one scientist described to me, the backwater viruses. They were seen as just these viruses that infected animals. You know, they're sometimes kind of seen in livestock. There's actually a cat disease called FIP. It's also caused by coronavirus. Weird side note, remdesivir seems to be effective for treating that cat coronavirus. Okay. Uh, and people have been <laughs> buying a black market version of that for their cats that otherwise die of this incurable disease. We can talk about this another time. <laughs> yeah, sidebar on cat viruses and the black yeah. market in cat medicine. <laughs> yeah, very, very strange world. Um, yeah, yeah, so for a long time, they were seen as like not really that important. They didn't really seem to cause human diseases. I think a lot of us know now, but I <laughs> doubt many of us really thought about it before, that there are four 
coronaviruses that also cause a common cold. So there are actually lots and lots of different viruses, including like rhinoviruses and adenoviruses that also cause what we all call the common cold. But there are four coronaviruses that cause a common cold, and they are like so unimportant that they have boring names like OC48. And so for a long time, people just thought these viruses are not very important and kind of boring. Mm -hmm. And then SARS comes along, and it's really the first time you see this virus being like really deadly in humans. And that's a big wake-up call. So there's a lot of research after SARS to try to figure out where this is coming from. Um, and it's I think at the time, it's kind of like traced to um, bats. So bats have this interesting thing where they're able to just live with a lot of viruses inside of them but they don't make them sick. It's almost like they're like a microbiome of viruses. They have like a virome inside them. Mm -hmm. So they seem to be like allowing viruses to kind of be changing and evolving inside them and like a reservoir for spilling over into other animals, including humans. After SARS, we have MERS um, coming out of Saudi Arabia, which seems to be also, it's not clear exactly where it come from, but it seems to be the immediate host is, was going from camels to humans, and then we're having some human to human transmission. SARS goes away, obviously. MERS is it's kind of still ongoing, but it never causes huge outbreaks. You know, it's not as infectious as COVID. And then, of course, now we have coronavirus that is taking over the world. Is it typical or entirely common for coronaviruses to be zoonotic, that is to jump from non-human animals to people, or do they also incubate naturally in humans too? I think most of the ones that we know about is like they are jumping from animals to humans, but also humans to animals. So I think one of the things we've seen is that minks are also getting sick from them and they wild minks um, might be a reservoir where that could mm -hmm. then reinfect humans, even if we manage to somehow eliminate it in humans, which probably is not going to happen at this point. But, you know, sci-fi scenario we do, it's possible that there are still animals that carry the virus. And actually, that is what happens with Ebola, for example, is that even if we, you know, stop a outbreak, there might be still Ebola circulating in wild animals, and then someone might get sick and you might get a new outbreak. One of the really fascinating things is that this is really the first time we've saw a new coronavirus emerge and kind of spread around the world. And there, there's a lot of questions about what the future of this coronavirus will look like. And a lot of scientists think that maybe these four common cold coronaviruses did also initially start with a pandemic a really long time ago. And then oh. over time, either the virus became less lethal or we sort of like all kind of built up some immunity as kids when it's like not very dangerous to us and we just have a little bit of immunity and the viruses are no longer very dangerous at all. And would that be good for the virus to evolve to be less lethal because then it can hang around in our bodies longer, right? Yeah, totally. Um, that is a much better evolutionary strategy if the whole purpose is to kind of keep replicating and spreading your genetic material. If you, like, for example, like are a super deadly virus that kills your human host immediately. Like, like Ebola. Right. You, you you can't have this, you know, the host is no longer walking around and sneezing and breathing and talking to other people. So, uh, yeah, from the perspective of like a virus trying to spread genetic material, it's much better to be just really mild and just nobody really knows that you're there. Yeah, exactly. So it sounds like we we knew coronaviruses before COVID-19, but they just weren't that important. They weren't that deadly. But the new thing that we've gotten out of this pandemic, other than a deep appreciation for face masks, is new kinds of vaccines. Can you tell us just a little bit about how these vaccines are working and why they're so awesomely different? 
Yeah, these are the mRNA vaccines, and specifically they're ones from Pfizer and Moderna. So vaccines, um, I like to kind of think of vaccines as a wanted poster for your immune system. (laughs) I love (laughs) it. So it's like giving you your immune system a snapshot of the bad guy, of the pathogen, so that by the time they see the real bad guy, they know exactly what to do. What's different about the mRNA vaccines is that instead of like printing out the wanted poster and like giving it to your immune system, you're really just giving your immune system the instructions to print out that wanted poster on their own. And the advantage of this is, is twofold. One is that um, you don't have to print out the poster, right? That's like the less thing, the vaccine factory is not out there printing out wanted posters. All it really has to do is to create the instructions. And it's really easy to update the instructions, which as we're kind of seeing with the variants is a thing that we're probably going to want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, the second is that there is no actual virus in the vaccine itself. There's, so there's no way for you to get COVID, for example, by getting one of these mRNA vaccines. That's super awesome. And it seems like it's working really well so far, except for these pesky variants. And so this is, as we as we start to think about the future of humans in their relationship with viruses, I want to hear more about what causes these variants. And were we pretty sure that this was going to happen? Did the medical community know we were going to have variants, but we just hoped that we'd get these vaccines out ahead of them? Yeah, this is actually the question I've been asking scientists all week. Because I think I think definitely, if you ask someone, is the virus going to change over time? The answer would have been yes. But I think a lot of scientists were a little bit surprised to see how quickly it changed and um, how many mutations it managed to accumulate. And I think that's because of two things. The first is that this virus has infected tens of millions of people. That's And the way, another way of putting it is that it's kind of like buying the virus tens of millions of lottery tickets. And each time it infects someone, it has a chance to kind of stumble upon these new mutations that make it make it a little bit more transmissible, for example, a little bit better at spreading from person to person. Um, the other thing is, is that... Uh, it may not change that much in like a normal person who kind of gets sick for a couple of weeks and then gets better. But scientists think that these new variants might be kind of arising in people who are immunocompromised. So you might be sick for several months. And in this case, the immune system is like not strong enough to completely beat back the virus, but the virus is kind of replicating an environment where it's, you know, kind of learning to live with the human immune system. So this might kind of just be like a training ground for the virus to learn how to evade human immunity. And that might be what we're seeing with the variants in South Africa and Brazil, for example, which seem to uh, evade the current vaccines and previous immunity a little bit. So what's happening then is that the virus gets into your body and each time it replicates, it's going to have a little bit of a mutation just because of how genetic replication works. And some of those mutations might turn out to be really awesome. Yeah, most of them will turn out to be not awesome. Most of them will probably turn out (laughs) to be bad. Some of them probably won't matter at all, but a very, very small number uh, might be great for the virus and and bad for us. And if you just have... Yeah, when I say awesome, I mean awesome for the virus. (laughs) Awesome for the virus. But if you just like let it happen enough times, literally things that are one in a million will start to happen. Yeah, because one of the hypotheses that I've heard is that these variants are coming out of places where there have been very little social distancing restrictions or um, mask mandates. And so it wasn't so much that people were sick for a long time, but just that so many people got sick. So is that another possibility? Or are now scientists saying, actually, it's probably people who are like long haulers or people who get sick for a long time? 
Yeah, we don't really know. Um, I will say like in terms of where the variants are coming from, we kind of have this lamppost problem, which is that we're not looking everywhere, right? So the UK and then South Africa are two countries that have really, really good genomic surveillance where they're looking for these new variants. It's probably happening all over the world in places where we aren't looking. So we're kind of we're, right now, we're kind of just like looking under a lamppost, but there's all this stuff in the dark where variants may be happening as well. So it's hard to say exactly where they're coming from. Yeah, we just know that it's from anytime you have rampant viral replication, you're going to possibly get a variant that sticks, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So as we learn more about viruses during this time of hyper-awareness about how they work, have we learned anything new about the virus life cycle? Because it, it feels to me like the way that we study viruses is kind of the way we study like ants or rats, which is like we study them to figure out how to kill them or get rid of them or exterminate them. We don't spend a lot of time thinking like, what is a happy virus doing? <laughs> what are aspects of a virus's life that don't involve destroying it? I mean, what's your opinion about this whole thing with viruses being alive and not alive. Does that make sense to you? Do you think that they're also <laughs> not alive or? So I don't know if the, the coronavirus research itself has really led to any of that, but if you kind of expand beyond that a little bit further, mm-hmm. I do think that there is this like whole wide world of viruses out there that's just like, just like dark matter right now. And I, I think the fact that we like just saw this new virus seem to come out of nowhere is an example of what all the things that we're not paying attention to and don't even know exist. We we talk about the microbiome and how we have all these bacteria inside of us. Well, we also have viruses that live inside us. And those viruses, they might infect our cells. They may also infect the bacterial cells. So those are called phages. So these viruses like might have, play some role in kind of like modulating what bacteria are able to live inside you, which in turn like modulate your gut. So it's this like really complicated network of life and maybe even non-life <laughs> if viruses aren't alive, mm-hmm. um, as most scientists think say they're not alive, though. It just seems such like a weird, arbitrary distinction. Yeah. I think one thing I've learned, especially this past year in covering the pandemic and like thinking a lot about definitions of things is that nothing in science is really a binary. It's really a spectrum. (laughs) (laughs) And so I'm not sure it really makes sense to make this like distinction between alive and not alive. So the the usual definition is that you're alive if you can replicate on your own. And viruses usually don't have that replication machinery. They need to like hijack like your cell, for example, to replicate themselves. Um, But like, I can't replicate on my own. I'd have to like... (laughs) go invade like a sperm sack if I wanted to replicate, right? So why do I get to be alive? Yeah, that's a great question. I think as humans, we like have this, like to impose order on the world, we like have these categories. But when you really look at all the boundaries of the categories, like there is no line. It's just this like blur. Yeah. I wanted to just ask you a couple of kind of science fictional questions now about where we're headed with all this stuff. But I also want to know if we're going to cure the common cold because there has been some talk about the idea that if we could get a coronavirus vaccine um, that was really effective, it might also be effective against these coronaviruses that cause colds. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it, it's possible. But I think one of the problems is that the cold is not actually one virus or even four coronaviruses. It's actually, I don't know the exact number, but there are like many different families of viruses that can cause cold. So even if we have a vaccine against like one family, it, it's not going to protect you from like rhinoviruses, for example. Oh, damn. So, it's, <laughs> so we, might, we might cure some colds. Yes. <laughs> but they'll probably still be around, unfortunately. Right. We'll still be getting the sniffles in the winter sometimes. Unless we do what we've done this year and just stay at home all the time with our face masks. Right. That's true. And I haven't had a cold this year, so Me that's neither. been really delightful. Yeah, the longest <laughs> I haven't been sick in who knows how long. Yeah. So all we have to do is just stay home 100% of the time, <laughs> cover our faces. Um, so that sounds like a great um, dystopian world. So looking to the future of our relationship with viruses, I know there's a lot of things that biotechnologists are doing to basically hijack viruses to use for medical therapies, like using virus shells to deliver drugs and stuff like that. Where do you see that going? And um, or are there other even weirder ways that we might use viruses in the future? Yeah, and also uh, vaccines. Um, AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson's vaccines use a adenovirus shell. Uh, so adenovirus is one of those viruses that causes common colds. And they basically these viruses are like, they're very well evolved to try to get inside you. And that's essentially what the vaccines and, and gene therapies are doing is that they're using the um, viral shell as like a Trojan horse to get inside your cells. I mean, it almost sounds like what you're doing is you're skinning a virus, right? You're taking its shell off and then you're stuffing good stuff inside of it. Yeah, yeah, that's basically it. Um, how it usually works is that you are actually constructing a genetic sequence. So you have the um, the sequence for like, you know, the shell of the adenovirus, and then you put the thing you want inside inside of it. So you're building the, the virus shell from scratch. You're just sort of stealing the um, code that the virus is using to build its shell, and then you're using it for your own thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And also it just happens at like a a level that's like so microscopic, it's invisible, right? And so it's like you have to think, hold it in your head of like what it actually looks like. And yeah, it actually is just a bunch of fluid. <laughs> when you when you look at the therapy itself, it's just like a bunch of clear fluid in a bag. <laughs> mm -hmm. But it's lots and lots of virus shells that contain therapies, basically. Yeah. So, so do you think... Is that something that um, we're going to continue to play around with, the idea of using components of viruses or sort of stealing um, tricks from viruses to get into the body? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, one way to think about viruses that infect us is that they've had thousands, maybe millions of years to try out strategies to hijack our, our cells, essentially. Like that, that's what viruses are. They're like a little piece of information that like hijacks your cells. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, you know, nature has had, you know, millions of years to figure out ways to get human cells to do certain things. So why can't we piggyback off of that? Yeah. That's a nice note to end on. <laughs> can you uh, tell folks where they can find your work? Yeah, I'm a staff writer Atlantic. So uh, please subscribe to The Atlantic Magazine or go to Atlantic.com. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us and talking all about viruses. That was 
so interesting. And I learned a lot about how viruses function. And it's funny because we have so many science fiction stories that are about viruses, and they rarely deal with the actual virus itself. The the virus is just kind of like a backdrop to have, you know, a pandemic, for example. And pandemic stories have been around since before we knew about viruses, because, of course, we've known about pandemics forever, and not all pandemics are caused by viruses. Mm -hmm. One of the very first pandemic science fiction stories was actually written by Mary Shelley, her novel The Last Man, which I always think about when I hear about Why the Last Man, which, of course, is a very recent pandemic story uh, that you know something about, Charlie Jane. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Might have heard of this. Um, so what are some of the threads that we see between pandemic stories and stories about fighting viruses? And, and I want us to be mindful that we're not really talking about pandemics. We're really talking about this idea of humans making war on viruses. And like, what do we see happening in these stories? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to recognize, first off, that a lot of stories about pandemics just use them as a cheap, easy way to get to the apocalypse. Yes. Like, it's like, how are you going to bring about the the end of civilization? It could be a nuclear war. It could be, like, you know, monsters. It could be, like, an asteroid strike. But a pandemic is a quick, easy way to, like, just kill a lot of people quickly, bring civilization grinding to a halt. And, you know, one example that I was thinking about as we were preparing for this episode, which I find super interesting, is the TV show The Last Ship which is a show that aired, you know, like 10 years ago. And I was sort of obsessed with it for a while. I remember. So The Last Ship is based on a novel from the 1980s in which there is a nuclear war and basically, like, the, the world is devastated. There's one Navy vessel that remains intact with its crew alive and they're sailing around trying to survive in the apocalypse and they're fighting other ships. And that's, that's the whole book. But when they decided to adapt it for mm-hmm. television... They were like, we don't want to make it a nuclear war. We're going to make it a pandemic. We're going to have like a mysterious virus that is somehow related to ancient DNA under Antarctica. And it's going to like do all this wacky stuff. And over the course of the show, they actually, one of the main characters is a virologist and they have all this insane pseudoscience about the virus and about how it mutates and about how they can cure it and they can like aerosolize the cure. It's like really silly. Mm-hmm. And eventually it attacks vegetation as well as people. It's like a really silly story, but they really commit to the virus thing. But I thought it was super interesting that they were like, well, we don't want to have nuclear war be the cause of the apocalypse anymore because that feels too 80s. We're just going to randomly make it a pandemic instead because that's an easy way to kill a lot of people and bring about the situation that we want to have in this show. So it's like literally just a means to an end. Yeah, it's kind of the the modern day nuclear war kind of thing. I guess I guess it used to be the Cold War and now it's the war on viruses. And, kind of, um, yeah. You know, that's That's one way that viruses are dealt with. I'm really interested in a strand of science fiction that deals with the way that viruses change humanity. And this kind of gets into some of the stuff that Sarah was talking about, about how viruses really rapidly mutate in our bodies and they kind of learn to live in our bodies. And I think Mm -hmm. that idea really inspires a lot of science fiction creators to think about, well, what if the virus wasn't just mutating itself, but mutating us. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite novels by Octavia Butler, which doesn't get talked about that much, um, it's part of the Pattern Masters series. It's called Clay's Ark. And it's about 
astronauts who catch a virus in space that turns humans into a more dog-like species. Uh, It changes us to be stronger, but also to be creatures that go into heat. And so there are all these weird new cultural weird new cultural traditions that kind of have to emerge around the fact that now humans are going into heat. And indeed, basically people speciate. And so some people become what are called clayarchs that are these kind of dog-like people. And then other people kind of become pattern masters um, who have psychic powers. And, And so humanity, because of this virus, becomes multiple species but then there's other stuff like 28 Days Later mm-hmm. and the whole subgenre of virus-caused zombies where right. the virus turns you into, again, turns you into a, a more animalistic version of humanity where we have no more higher reason or we're just only motivated by food and, like, survival instead of being motivated by, like, the desire to watch movies or to write <laughs> dissertations or whatever it is that humans do. Yeah, I mean, one thing that that makes that I think of immediately is is the novel uh, I Am Legend um, yes. by Richard Matheson, which really plays around with that in an interesting way. And there have been multiple ad- adaptations of it which have tried to get to the point of the novel and usually fall just a little bit short in various ways. Like, in the novel of I Am Legend, there's a virus that kind of turns people into kind of vampire, kind of zombies, mostly vampires, I guess. And, yeah. you know, And that happens the hero, in The Omega Man, which is one of right. the adaptations. Yeah, and that's probably the closest to the actual novel. And so the hero, Robert Neville, goes around hunting these creatures because they're monsters and he's got to fight them. And, like, he's the last human and there are all these monsters who are, like, you know, post-human creatures. And the sort of twist at the end is that he realizes they actually are still kind of on some level human. They're still people. And he's the monster. And like that's, he's legend because he's like this legendary threat that they've been like up against and that they are terrified of. And, you know, in the Will Smith version, they tried to have an ending that kind of nodded towards that, but they decided it wasn't cool enough. And so they just ended with like, he kills everybody and that's the end. But I I think it's really, like, it's interesting to play around with that idea of, like, a virus can kind of change us into something unrecognizable, but we might still be human. It's, like, kind of this ambiguous zone of, like, what are we after we've been transformed? Oftentimes, now, stories about viruses and pandemics are connected with hopes and fears about human evolution, which makes me think about Margaret Atwood's novel Oryx and Crake, which is partly a pandemic apocalypse, but it's also a story about, again, speciation, where Mm. a new type of human is, uh, spoilers for a a, a relatively older novel here, but at the end of Oryx and Crake, a new species of humanity is created actually by the people who unleashed the deadly virus, because they're trying to kind of reboot humanity, and they build these humans called the Krakers, who are intended to be more peaceful And interestingly, one of the things that makes them peaceful is that they also go into heat. So they always know when they're supposed to have sex and when they're not supposed to have sex, I guess, is part of the idea. (laughs) But it's funny that I hadn't actually thought about the fact that Clay's arc by Octavia Butler also had this feature, that there's some way in which we we keep coming back to that as some sort of weird evolutionary thing that, why don't we go into heat? That seems weird. Um, Let's just fix that. So I think it's 
it's definitely a fantasy. Like our fantasy about viruses is often like, what if we were like viruses and we could just like mutate really quickly over like just a generation or two? And of course, that's not how evolution works. But for viruses, it seems like it works that way because their generations are so short that we can see like dramatic changes in their species over a very short period of time, which we don't see in a lifetime, a human lifetime. We don't see like the next generation is born with feathers. (laughs) But that is the fantasy, I think. And I think that's why viruses are so appealing in a weird way. And then, of course, there's silly viruses in pop culture. I could not let this episode go by without mentioning the macro virus that appears on Star Trek Voyager, (laughs) where in order to imagine the war between humans and viruses, they create a virus that's just a big, giant, I don't know what kind of virus it is. Maybe it's a rhinovirus, but it kind of floats around on the ship and it has like a big pointy phallic thing that it keeps like thrusting at people because it's trying to like break into their shells. It's got a big, it's, it's got a big virus shell, right? And the virus shell is trying to break into our cells. Um, but it's unfortunately, because it's so big, it, it can't actually do as good of a job as it might do. I guess it just kills people, like stabby killing. So yeah, that actually brings me to my obligatory Doctor Who reference, which <laughs> is that in Doctor Who, the invisible enemy There's a virus that's like a space virus that infects the doctor and a bunch of other people. And it takes over your brain. It like mind controls you and makes you, and you can, you infect Mm. people by shooting lightning bolts out of your eyes. And that's how you infect other people with the virus. But the best part is that the doctor, in order to fight this virus, clones himself, shrinks the clone down to microscopic level and injects the microscopic clone of himself into his own brain so he can go confront the virus. And there's this amazing scene, which I'm going to have to make you watch, Adelie, where the doctor walks into his own brain (laughs) and there's this little creature there that's like the the nucleus of the virus that's like this little kind of like, it looks like a shrimp kind of. Okay. And the doctor walks up to it and says, you don't have any right to infect my body. Get out of my body. And the virus is like, I have a right to exist just like you do. I'm a no, I'm a life form, and the doctor debates with the virus about, like, which one of them has the right wow. to exist. free speech, man. Virus free speech. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually, it's amazing. And then the virus, like, escapes. It gets to be macro-sized, and, like, it's a whole, it's oh a whole freaking thing. We have to watch it. It's kind of amazing. This goes back to this fantasy again of, like, what if we could be viruses? You know, it's like the doctor turns himself into his own virus. It's Super weird. Essentially. I mean, he turns himself into a, a version of himself that can have a conversation with a virus, which is kind of like turning into a virus. <laughs> it's, it's, it's delightfully weird. <laughs> he becomes weird. his own infection. <laughs> he has to actually fight his own immune system because his own immune system starts attacking him. It's like really weird. Oh my God. I love it. There's like two ways I can think of that like a pandemic apocalypse is different from like a regular apocalypse, like nuclear war or earthquake or asteroid strike. One is the kind of problem solving that you get where you actually like, instead of just being like, well, there's been a nuclear war, we're screwed. There's zombies, we got to shoot them. You can have all of this story around like finding a cure, trying to stay quarantined, trying to like all the stuff that we've been dealing with in real life. And like, you can have people in lab coats, like looking at beakers and being like, shaking the beaker and being like, is this going to be the one? Sure. But also the other the other way is the paranoia, the paranoia of like we have to stay away from other people, which again, we've been kind of experiencing in real life, but it's like in a story you can have like either other people are going to go crazy and attack you or we just have to stay away from other people because they might be infectious. 
And so, like, that level of, like, anxiety mm-hmm. and paranoia is not fun in real life, but it's it's sort of fun in a story, I guess. Yeah, it's interesting because there are a lot of virus stories about people being infected with viruses that make them crazy and paranoid, like The Crazies, mm-hmm. um, which was recently right. remade. There's this, and, and again, that plays on the idea of, like, what if humans— were transformed and became more animalistic or became something else, something other than than what we are. The other thing that's interesting and that that Sarah brought up when she was talking about viruses and that I find continuously fascinating is this idea that they're not alive. They are alive, but they're not alive. And we and there's there's some kind of weird border state. And so many of our virus fantasies now are about zombies, which are in fact creatures that are dubiously alive. They're undead. Um, They occupy this liminal space between living and dead. And so I think it's interesting that we have a genuine scientific debate over whether viruses are alive. And then now we're also having this kind of side debate within science fiction about zombies. Like, are zombies really alive? Like, is it a situation like I Am Legend, where actually the zombies are the new life form? Or like in Oryx and Crake, where the Krakers who are kind of weird non-humans, are they the new life form? Or are they something that we should kill because they're just a kind of horrible, degraded version of humanity? And so we just shoot them all, uh, like in 28 Days Later, where it's just, you can't do anything about, they just, they have a virus that makes them crazy and they'll never be better or like, they'll never inherit the earth because they're just mad dogs, basically. Mm Mm-hmm. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to finish up our conversation by talking about whether viruses are the ultimate other. Okay, so I've been thinking a lot about the idea that comes really from sociology, that humans need to have an other, like that our brains just function as an us versus them kind of deal. And that anytime we have an us, we just, we have to have a them. We just can't, somehow we just can't function without it. And so many of our stories about fighting viruses try to somehow personify the virus or embody the virus, turn it into something that we can fight against, that we can turn into our ultimate them. And so this is my galaxy brain question for you, Charlie Jane, which is, I think we all understand why us versus them thinking and, th- and you know, creating an idea of an other, why that's toxic and why that leads to, um, you know, wars, it leads to radicalization in, a, in an ugly way. But could viruses be a non-toxic other, if that makes sense. Like, if we're fighting viruses and we turn viruses into our them, like if us is humanity and viruses are them, could that actually be healthy? I mean, I think I want to kind of turn that question on its head a little bit and be like, can we be united as a species in the fight against viruses? Can we kind of put aside our differences and you know, be like, we are all united in trying to contain this virus. And, you know, I feel like the past year and change have been kind of a yes and a no to that question. Because on the one hand, we've really seen a lot of cooperation, a lot of, you know, people putting aside, you know, longstanding differences because we all have to work together to, to suppress this virus and to flatten the curve. 
We've also seen a lot of the opposite. We've seen a lot of like scapegoating of Asian people because of some idea that the virus came from Asia. So we should, you know, we live here in the Bay Area where anti-Asian hate crimes have gone up through the roof. We've also seen a lot of us versus them with regards to like people wearing masks or not wearing masks. And if you wear a mask, that's a sign that you're the enemy somehow. And, you know, so it's really, it's been both. And I think that it's like a lot of like things like this bring out the best and the worst in people, which is one of those things that like is always a challenge as a storyteller to show how, you know, people can rise to the occasion or they can sink to their lowest version of themselves in response to something really terrible like this. And it's not an either or, it's both, I think. I don't know. What do you think? I think you're absolutely right. And I think it was, it's good to put the question that way. Like, can we, it's really a question of, can we become that unified us? And I think part of the problem with the war on viruses is that we don't think of viruses as alive. We don't think of them as, as an enemy as such. And so because we're fighting it, we have to come up with some other kind of enemy to stand in for the virus. So if it's not going to be zombies, it's going to be, say, Chinese people, like you said. Like, that was Trump's big thing, was make, calling it the China virus and trying to personify the virus as being somehow a whole group of people from a nation that he didn't like. And we see that in other ways, too, previous times in history where you know, the poor have been blamed for viruses, for example. They've been blamed for pandemics. You know, it's like, oh, the dirty poor, they're the ones who are spreading this disease. I feel like we always come up with some stand-in and, like, the question really is, like, can we start to see who the real enemy is? The enemy is the virus. And also the the virus could be, um, as Sarah was pointing out, could eventually become a friend. Like, we could appropriate the virus shell to use for therapies. So... I feel like this shows kind of the limits of our us versus them thinking in a way. Like, we can't actually identify the real them, so we keep coming up with other crap to put in its place. Yeah, and, you know, unfortunately, from a public health perspective, in order for for you and me to be healthy, everybody has to be healthy. And so the idea that we're going to, like, you know, be at at odds with some people or that some people are not going to get the help that they need because we don't like those people. It's literally self-sabotaging. And, you know, part of what we see with the virus is that frontline workers, especially people of color, BIPOC people, essential workers have been harder hit than the rest of us. And there hasn't been that concern for the well-being of people who, you know, have been historically disenfranchised because we don't think it has anything to do with us, even though, We're all in this together, literally. And also, you know, we're seeing now with vaccine distribution, there's a huge question about like whether the United States is going to get the vaccine and just like, we're not going to worry about less wealthy countries and whether they have access to the vaccine, even though it's in everybody's interest for the world to be vaccinated because you don't want more mutations. You don't want the virus to get more chances to kind of, you know, adapt and keep spreading. I feel like there's a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of short-sighted thinking Yeah, and I think that ultimately what you're saying shows that my original question really wasn't the right question because I was saying, well, what if it's, you know, us, humanity against the virus, but of course, the virus hits different groups of humans harder than others, not because those humans are more vulnerable to the virus, but because of the societies that we've built with systemic racism and classism. 
certain groups of people are just going to be more on the front lines with the virus. So it's hard to see a unified us when all around us we see examples of how we've been fragmented and how some people are suffering more than others. So I guess the war on viruses still ends up being the war of humans against other humans, and we still haven't figured out how to fix that. I guess my hope that we could create a non-toxic other <laughs> with viruses, um, just it's just not it's just not feasible. It's just me having utopian thinking about something kind of dystopian. And, um, you know, maybe I'll leave it at that. We need Captain Janeway with like a big gun wearing a tank top running around the ship shooting at the virus. And then we can like finally, you know, have the Then we can finally unite against the virus. (laughs) Captain Janeway. I will have my united humanity. I, I still just want, you know, someone to come in and say, we're canceling the apocalypse. We're all in it together. But- For now, unfortunately, what we've learned is that we're not all in it together, and we need to work on that a lot. All right. So thank you so much for listening to this episode of Our Opinions Are Correct. If you liked it, you can support us on Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash ouropinionsarecorrect. And if you become a supporter, you get lots of extras. You get audio extras. You get little essays every week. Uh, You get to hang out with other people who are part of our Patreon community. And you can also follow us on Twitter. We're at OOACpod on Twitter. And we would love to see you there. You can find our podcast everywhere. Fine podcasts are distributed. Um, Please leave a review of us on Apple Podcasts because it helps people find us. Thank you so much to our intrepid producer, Veronica Simonetti, who has to listen to our conversations over and over again and then edit them. And thank you to Chris Palmer for the music. And we will talk to you in a couple weeks. Bye.